I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the power of asking people questions. The poll is really the only tool that's designed to give everybody in the country an equal voice. And so it's, it's a really unique you know, window into society in that respect. Then what's the effect of big companies buying little companies? Are they squashing an acorn before it can become an oak? Or are they actually taking a little oak with a good idea and spreading it rapidly through the whole economy because they have so much reach? Plus, generational warfare has been going on for generations. I'm a baby boomer myself. All the things that were being said about baby boomers and how they're in the way of the young and all those things were exactly the things that baby boomers had said about their parents or the older generation 30 years ago. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. When she was a kid, Kellyanne Fitzpatrick was driven to a degree that was both impressive and kind of tiring. Everyone who knew her knew that, and one day the whole country would know. But when Fitzpatrick was growing up, she didn't have a whole lot. She was the only child of a single mom who worked as a cashier in a nearby New Jersey casino. During the summer, Fitzpatrick picked blueberries. She was shockingly fast. When she was 16, she won the New Jersey Blueberry Princess pageant. Then a college year abroad in England helped to shape Kellyanne Fitzpatrick into a person who arguably has profoundly changed America. At Oxford, she met a man working on his doctorate. He was in love with politics and public opinion and understanding where those two things intersected. The man was named Frank Luntz, and he went on to work as a pollster for high-profile candidates in the 1990s, like Republican Pat Buchanan and Independent Ross Perot. Luntz also hired Fitzpatrick before she started her own company. Ultimately, her specialty became understanding women and their views. Big companies like Hasbro and American Express hired her. She wrote books. She became a fixture on TV. And like many other pollsters, she came to understand the unique power of polling. Here is fellow pollster Courtney Kennedy, who heads up survey research at the Pew Research Center. The poll is really the only tool that's designed to give everybody in the country an equal voice. And so it's, it's a really unique you know, window into society in that respect. Kennedy articulates a truth that pollsters have known for a long time, starting perhaps with George Gallup, who rightly predicted that Franklin Roosevelt would defeat Alf Landon in 1936. Kennedy says there are lots of voices that get amplified by money and activism, but polling aims to get a much broader look at our country. Kellyanne Fitzpatrick has always understood that, though I should say she now goes by her married name, Conway. Kellyanne Conway's role as candidate Donald Trump's advisor began in 2016, after Senator Ted Cruz, who she had initially worked for, dropped out of the race. And Conway's understanding of public opinion, her reading of private polls, and her sense of what states might have been closer than previously imagined, they proved invaluable to her boss. Today, we're going to take a look at how the science of polling has changed and what the polls tell us about what's going to happen in the fall of 2018. That science is well understood by a few people, but it is rarely discussed with the public. In fact, because of the growth of cell phones and the trickiness of actually getting Americans to take a poll, 
Courtney Kennedy from Pew says many people think polling is less accurate now than it used to be. Not from her perspective. Cell phones were super effective in solving some really critical problems we were running into with landlines in the late 1990s and early 2000s. We were really running into problems reaching young adults, reaching non-whites. Well, guess who we get on cell phones? We do phenomenal. I mean, relatively speaking, sort of if you look at how many do we get in our poll and how many are, are in the population, right? We do really well uh, reaching some of those harder groups with cell phones. Fred Yang is a Democratic pollster who does both the kind of private polls that Kellyanne Conway did as a Republican pollster, and he also helps with the NBC Wall Street Journal polls, along with a Republican counterpart. Yang is a partner at Peter D. Hart Research Associates, and he says another gap in understanding between pollsters and the public centers around the last presidential election. I do remember after the 2016 election, there there was a a lot of um, hand-wringing in general about um, the death of polling and could people ever trust pollsters um, again, even though ironically the national polling was fairly accurate in in, in guessing the the Clinton-Trump margin. Uh, And, you know, we're in this weird sort of Orwellian world where people said the polls were wrong and actually the national polls were right, except we don't elect our presidents um, on a national popular vote. We elect them by electoral college. So while lots of polls predicted the national vote pretty darn well, high-quality state polls were harder to come by. And pollsters' predictions about who was actually going to show up at the polls was a little bit off, an issue that will once again surface when we're trying to figure out whether Democrats can pry control of Congress away from Republicans. Here's Fred Yang again. When we are doing our polls, whether it's over the telephone or online or whatnot, we're looking for a certain um, group of people. If you don't fit that criteria, um, you don't, we, we, we terminate you in a nice way, of course. Okay. We say, um, let's move <laughs> on, right? Okay. So, for example, in the 2018 elections, because turnout in midterm elections um, is less robust during presidential elections, we are going to already self-select some people out. There are a lot of mm-hmm. states um, and congressional districts in the country that have very up-to-date and accurate voter files. So if we know that Fred Yang votes in, he voted in 2016 and 2012, but Fred okay. Yang didn't vote in 2014 and 2010, and we're mm-hmm. polling for 2018 election, it's not yeah. likely we would include Fred right. Yang in the first place. Now, by the way, right. this guy just doesn't he doesn't exactly. show up for midterms. Because that's based yeah. um obviously Kara, not on my present behavior, on my past behavior. Now, what right. messed up some of the election polling in 2016 is there were some Fred Yangs who hadn't voted who actually decided to vote. Those folks who maybe hadn't voted much but decided to vote in 2016, according to Courtney Kennedy, tended to be non-college-educated white voters who supported Trump in huge numbers, but who were somewhat underrepresented in polls. Now, as we head into 2018, there's been lots of chatter that the enthusiasm gap is on the other foot, favoring Democrats. Kennedy says, be careful, it's a little more complicated than that. Whereas, you know, several months ago, there were signals from special elections and polling that it um, you know, it might be a strong wave. That's increasingly less clear, right, where you might okay. have had the polling okay. average at uh, about a 10-point Democratic margin and a generic 
House race that's now looking at, you know, about a five-point margin or even less than that. Okay. So there's signs that that's tightening up. And when you say the generic, you mean like people are like, in general, you know, by 10 points, they're like, yeah, I'd vote for a Democrat over a Republican. Not like a specific person, but I like Democrats a little bit better. You know, I, should, I should have clarified that, right? So uh, at Pew Research Center, we do national polls. And okay. it's, it's really too tedious to figure out, you know, across the country, what is the exact... Um, race. What are the two candidates right, in this right. fall? We don't even know that in many cases yet, which candidates right. are going to be on the ballot. So it's a generic question of in the you know House of Re- U.S. House race in your district this mm-hmm. fall, um, you know, do you tend to favor the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate? That kind of okay. question. So it's generic okay. because we're, we're taking out the specific candidate names and just getting, you know, that party read at this point. Okay. And you're saying you've seen it shift. Like you thought a big, big Democratic wave maybe was coming and maybe now not so you're not so convinced of that. Well, that's that's what the polling averages have been showing recently. Absolutely. Okay. Um, So I wonder what you make of two historical sort of competing forces in polling uh, during midterm elections. Generally, you've got the president's party, which loses seats during a midterm. Um, But also generally, turnout is lower, and it's often whiter and older, which would tend to favor Republicans. How do you kind of reconcile this wave theory with the reality of who actually turns out to vote? I agree there's some evidence to that in, in the historical record. But frankly, the size of that, you know, Republican demographic midterm advantage, I think, is not as large, frankly, as a lot of people think it is. I mean, it makes okay. sense, the narrative of the older, maybe more Caucasian voters being having higher propensity to be those midterm voters. Some truth to that. But I mm-hmm. think it easily gets uh, overstated. And I think one thing that we learned in 2016 is that there's a lot of this sort of, um, you know, political science, pollster, wisdom, rules of thumb that that we think work and are pretty robust as as helping us um, predict what's going to happen in elections. And frankly, those rules are not always as useful and as reliable as as we want them to be. And in 2016, we saw painfully that that can lead people trying to understand the dynamics of the election astray. However, just to go back to the issue of older voters, let's say, versus younger voters, Pew recently did a poll showing that young people, this is a quote, young people are far less likely than older adults to follow news about the midterms. Now, in some ways, that's counter to the narrative we've heard because we've heard, oh, this is a year, unlike other years, when people under 30 are very energized. But it also reinforces the old idea, which is that people under 30 are not that energized to vote in in midterm elections. That's right. It's a reality check, right? I mean, there's a lot of media stories and, um, you know, the, the gun debate, for example, that's been a media um, right. story that where a lot of those images, right, are of young people and protest marches. A lot of the visuals are of young people. So it's easy to get a sense that, oh, my gosh, young voters, this must be the year. But if you do, you know, if you take the focus off those sort of, you know, high profile events that tend to draw the the activists, the politically engaged folks, and you do a national cross-section, right, where you get mm-hmm. a, a truly representative sample of young people, uh, then, you you know, that that effect is is really not there. And it's it's um, kind of, you know, again, it's a reality check that um, it's it's easy to think it's the, the year of the, the young voter, but we, we really don't see it when we take a breath and do a national look. Hmm. 
So let me get a sense from both of you on this, but Courtney, I'll start with you. So the president has been in office for close to a year and a half now. Um, He's somebody who's a very polarizing figure. A lot of people love him. A lot of people don't like him at all. I just wonder in the last year and a half, when you look at polls, and, and a lot has happened in the last you know, year plus, whether it's like the firing of Jim Comey or pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord or undoing regulations, all sorts of things have happened. Do you feel like people have changed their views when it comes to President Trump and the Republican Party or surprisingly not so much? I would say it's it's the latter. Certainly some okay. people have changed their views, but mm-hmm. um you know, do you see a massive migration away from um, support for the administration or support from the Republican Party? No, no, mm-hmm. we, we definitely don't see that. And Fred, do you share that view of like, people are kind of where they were about 18 months ago? Yes, I, I absolutely agree with Courtney. And I think, um, you know, look, um, I'm a, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm a Democratic pollster. But I'm also uh, to do my job right, I need to I'm try to be a try to analyze the data and the reality in a nonpartisan way, right? I mean, I have my hat right. I wear, but right. it sh- I should try to be sort of down the middle in, in the way I think and analyze things. And I think to me, one of the fascinating things is, you know, people talk about the Trump vote. And I actually think um, that is kind of a misnomer because I believe there will, quote unquote, be a Trump vote, even if there's not a Trump presidency. And I, I, I think that, um, for example, uh, you know, everyone... Um, makes a big to-do, as we should, that President Trump's approval rating is the lowest since Harry Truman. It's among the lowest in recorded polling history. That's absolutely right. He's a very polarizing figure. But I I do think, um, and this is, you know, um, as much about our culture and our society as it is about our politics, I think we're clearly in an era in which you are clearly on one side or the other. So, you know, back in the um, glory days of, of our republic, when you had an LBJ or a JFK or an Eisenhower with 75%, 80% approval ratings, you mm-hmm. only get that um, high when you get the opposition party to give you good ratings. President Obama didn't get great ratings from Republicans. President Bush mm-hmm. didn't get great ratings um, um, from Democrats. Now, I think mm-hmm. President Trump has taken that to a new low, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, pre- the Trump presidency and his approval ratings and image, that could be not just Donald Trump. It could be sort of what the new normal is in our country in which people are so divided along partisan lines. Um, and in the political, in the polling for um, clients, for people who are aspiring to win a House district or whatever um, this year, do you feel like every district is its own ecosystem? Or do you feel like, I mean, I've heard Charlie Cook, who who writes the Cook Political Report, say, you know, when there's a wave, one of the strange things is at the end, almost every one of the dominoes falls the same way. Like, you don't you don't think that would happen. But all these all these toss up races strangely break exactly the same way. So I, I just wonder if do you feel like you're going into this like every different uh, area is different or the, the mood of the country pervades somehow. Can I give you a typical pollster answer that aggravates my clients, which is both? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, no. Okay, uh, okay. I would say, um, yes, I, I believe that um, there are structural dynamics, national trends that will have an impact on the 
2018 election, just like, um, honestly, in 2014, the unpopularity of President Obama um, at the national level hurt Democrats' individual seats. I like the wave okay. theory, Kara, because I think, yes, there's a wave, there's waves in, in politics. But I think it de depends, then you, you look at the individual district. It, whether you are in a district that's sort of high ground or whether you're in a district that's low ground. If you're a Republican mm -hmm. in a low ground district, you're gonna be t blown away by the wave. If you're a Republican mm -hmm. in a high ground district, you may get wet. <laughs> Uh, it may be uncomfortable, but you may survive. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, mm -hmm. I, no, I do believe in the wave theory in politics, but I think to say, you know, District 1 is the same as District 435, I don't think that's correct. I do think there, um, again, if you're a high ground or low ground, I think that can make a difference. Courtney, uh, give me a sense of how polling is changing and how you think it may look in 10 or 20 years. Like, if you think about the trends that you're seeing how do you feel like it's changing? Sure. There's two really important trends that I'm seeing. You know, it used to be you had to have a lot of capital, a lot of knowledge uh, to be a pollster, brick and mortar, mm -hmm. call shops. I mean, you really had it was a, a small group of people who really knew what they were doing by and large. Right. Okay. That right. is completely gone because of the technology that's come online between automated phone polls, the interactive voice response where it's an automated message, right, which are very low cost, very easy to, to push out. And now polling that can be done on the internet with essentially convenient samples very quickly, very cheaply. So what we're seeing is that um, increasingly you see a poll report, you know, a press release from a pollster you've never heard of. And those mm -hmm. of us in the industry have never heard of. And, the, you know, and it's another way of saying the barriers to being a pollster have kind of disappeared. And um, that, for some people, is, is a good thing. Um, you have more voices in the discussion, but it brings a lot of concern as well because you have a lot of people putting out, you know, quote unquote facts about these races. And it's not necessarily based on good methodology or, you know, a lot of expertise that people who have been trained in this and doing it for 20 years can bring to bear. So that's one thing. The second trend is this overall migration, fairly sm slow migration from phone polling, which was the dominant methodology for, for several decades, um, towards online polling. And right now you see a mix. You see some pollsters do all of their work online, others do do phone. And I think we're going to probably continue to see that for a few more election cycles. Um, but uh, I think, you you know, there's a pronounced trend in which telephone interviewing is, is fading away as, as pollsters mm -hmm. try to figure out how to, how to do this online. Courtney Kennedy is the director of survey research at the Pew Research Center, and Fred Yang is a Democratic pollster and a partner at Peter D. Hart Research Associates. Courtney and Fred, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I mentioned George Gallup at the beginning of this segment, who started the Gallup poll. He was the father of modern polling, and he got his start in Iowa in the early 30s during the Great Depression, when his mother-in-law ran for Secretary of State. Gallup did polling for her, and she became Iowa's first female Secretary of State. Gallup's obsession with accuracy made his work an industry standard, and perhaps to reinforce his objectivity, Gallup didn't vote for president. At least, not after 1928, when his candidate, Alfred E. Smith, 
lost the presidential election to one Herbert Hoover. Probably not that interested in the beer industry, unless you're in the beer industry. But even so, let me offer a tidbit about beer that gives us a clue as to something curious that's happening in the economy. Even though many of us have witnessed a boom in craft beer makers over the past couple of decades, this is the bottom line. A handful of beer companies control about 90% of the U.S. beer market. So what's happening to all those cute little companies? They're being squeezed out? or they're being bought up. And this is not just a beer story, according to David Wessel, who used to be the economics editor at the Wall Street Journal. If you have market power in your industry, you can raise prices and innovate less. Wessel is now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and he notes that in 2008, the top four U.S. airline companies ate up about 40 cents of every dollar the industry made. Now, just 10 years later, the top airline companies, they don't eat up 40 cents anymore. They eat up more than 60 cents of every dollar. And this is happening mostly under the radar in all sorts of other areas, from pet food to pharmaceuticals. And if you work for these companies, you might be getting a raw deal. The share of income that's going to profits is up, and the share of income that's going to labor is down. Wessel, though, is not ready to say that increasing consolidation is a terrible thing. Because when Facebook, for example, buys a new and budding app or Anheuser-Busch scoops up a craft brewer that's super popular in Nevada, that purchase could have two very different effects. Are they squashing an acorn before it can become an oak? Or are they actually taking a little oak with a good idea and spreading it rapidly through the whole economy because they have so much reach. That's one that it's really a lot of discussion among economists is what's the right way to think about this. Wessel says the reason that this is happening now and in so many different areas is first, there have been a lot of mergers and not a lot of aggressiveness from the government in stopping them. Second, we find ourselves in a moment when being big is pretty great. Technology makes it much more efficient to have a big enterprise. That is, it's hard for a small enterprise to compete with a big one because the big one has such economies of scale. So technology can help a small company get big. Technology may make it impossible to be a small company. One area where this dynamic seems to have played out to the detriment of consumers is healthcare, where Wessel says that prices tend to spike in areas of the country with lots of hospital consolidation. Now, you might think that consolidating payroll in various hospitals and ordering Tylenol and bandages in bulk, that might allow hospitals to lower prices. Or at least, that's what you'd hope. That's not exactly what you get, says David Wessel. While healthcare is different than a lot of other services that we buy, it's not completely different. Mm -hmm. And when there is no competition, you tend to get, because the way people operate, these are often profit-seeking businesses or nonprofits that act like profit businesses, they charge as much as they can get away with. Right, right. And let's say there's a big employer in a town. They buy health insurance for their employees, and their health insurer is negotiating a network. And they give lower prices to the to get the business from this employer, right. the hospital will give lower prices. And uh, without the pressure of competition, the employer or its health insurance company simply has no leverage. Mm -hmm. If there's only one hospital in town, 
that's the one that people go to. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. There were two hospitals, one owned by Yale, one by St. Raphael's, uh, a Catholic chain. They merged. And as soon as they merged, all the prices at St. Raphael's went up to the level that Yale charged. Hmm. So if we thought we could force efficiencies, if we were convinced that consolidation would create more efficient or better health care, and that would show up either in lower prices or in better uh, you know, mortality and morbidity things, then we wouldn't have a problem. From my reading of the evidence, and there's quite a bit of debate about this, the hospital consolidation has not proved to promote efficiencies. It's proved to promote higher prices. Do you have a sense that on a routine basis, companies are using their power, their increasing power by being at the top and capturing more and more share of the business to quash little competitors that could, you know, take take some of the industry away from them. Right. So it's circumstantial evidence. It's okay. like you're putting together all these pieces right. and you say, is this compelling? I find it compelling, but there's a lot of debate. So there are two things going on which make you worry about this. One is if businesses get really big and they dominate their industry, then they don't have to invest a lot to innovate to head off competition. Right, right. So we did until very recently see disappointing levels of business investment and some academic research looks at business investments in concentrated industries versus others and sees a pattern there. So that would be worrisome. That suggests that they don't fear competition, so therefore they don't invest, which therefore we don't get the benefits of innovation mm -hmm. or productivity improvements that would be forced if there was more competition. Mm -hmm. Another thing that people look at with a great deal of alarm is the shrinking number of new businesses formed in the country. And that's another way of asking, is the economy becoming less dynamic? Right. And one possible explanation is that we're getting fewer new businesses formed because they just know they're not going to make it. There's a really interesting little side argument here, one which I have a hard time making up my mind about. You know, Facebook and Google are incredibly aggressive at buying little companies. Hmm. They buy them as acorns before they can grow up to be oaks. Right. And so some people look at this and say, well, we'll never find out if there's a better Facebook or a better Amazon because anybody who starts to seem a little bit successful, they get bought out. Right. Whatever good idea they have is incorporated into the big product. All right. So here's the question. Does that give more or less incentive for people to start one of these new companies? On one hand, you're not going to become Mark Zuckerberg right. or Bill Gates right. or Steve Jobs. So that could be a downer. Instead, I'll, you know, do something else. On the other hand, now you know if you have like a halfway decent product and you get a few million <laughs> users, right. you don't have to wait for 10 years to do an IPO. You can just sell for $3 billion right. to Apple or Google or Facebook. I was going to say you could even make less. I mean, you could maybe make $30 million and, okay, well, maybe you're done with that product. But you've got $30 million, exactly. which you could plow into something new or you could just be rich or whatever. Right. So it's not it's – not, the thing that makes this all so interesting is – well, some people, including some uh, Democrats in Congress, big is bad. we got to break up these companies. When you look closely, there's something going on that's worrisome. Mm -hmm. There's less competition, and that's providing less innovation and less productivity growth. But it's not simple enough to say all mergers should be defeated, everybody's bad. And I should say, this is a real live issue. Right now, the government's going to have to decide whether to let go from four cell phone companies – 
to three, this mm-hmm. Sprint T-Mobile merger. Right. And this is the kind of issue that people are grappling with now in real time. It's not just some academic exercise. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with David Wessel, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of the recent Harvard Business Review article, Is Lack of Competition Strangling the U.S. Economy? We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. Can you think of an industry or a company where you felt like there was some sort of active quashing of like, no, this is an interesting craft beer, you know, craft brewery. I'll snap this up, and then they won't be my competition anymore. Well, what happens in beer, I think, is there are a lot of craft breweries. Right. But when you look, a lot of them are partly owned by the big guys. Hmm. So they're finding a way to—it's almost a marketing thing. I know everybody doesn't like to buy something that says— Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch or Michelob. Right. So I'll invest in these little things, and you, then we decide. I mean, there's some evidence from antitrust trials that prices go up, have gone up for beer as a result of this. I think one of the most interesting is, is pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. where companies, the big companies, have been very aggressive at trying to prevent price competition for drugs. One of the ones that's most frustrating in the the Food and Drug Administration is trying to deal with this now, goes something like this. I make a product. It's no longer protected on patent. So what's supposed to happen is a generic maker can make it. Right. And then For way cheaper. For way cheaper. For way cheaper. And that pushes down the price, and we all live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Some drugs have particularly bad side effects. So the government has said, if you make this drug that has particularly bad side effects— like it might cause birth defects if someone takes us pregnant. Mm-hmm. We want to have a very restrictive uh, system of distribution so that it's not inadvertently given to somebody and it'll have bad effects, but we still want it to be used where appropriate. Okay. So some of the makers of these drugs have told the generic companies, well, I'm sorry, but because of the government, we can't let you have a sample of this drug because it's on this restricted distribution thing, and if we give it to you, you know, you might by inadvertently use it on some pregnant woman. Well, without the sample, they can't come up with a generic. So there's all sorts of games that are being played hmm. by big pharma to kind of discourage competition. It's getting increasing amounts of attention. You know, we commissioned a paper by an economist at Yale, uh, Fiona Scott Morgan, Morton, and she had like 20 things that were going on in the drug industry where big pharma was stomping on competition, and she was encouraging the Federal Trade Commission and the Food and Drug Administration to act. Do you think that in aggregate, when you step back and you look at from hospital chains to airline tickets to pet food to beer, do you think that consumers are paying higher prices because of this phenomenon where in all sorts of industries, the few big companies are getting bigger and bigger slices of the pie in the last 10, 20, 30 years? Given how little inflation there's been lately, it's really hard to make the argument that somehow prices are skyrocketing because of this concentration. So I'm more worried that it's not now raising prices, but it threatens to raise prices in the future, and we're getting fewer innovations and less productivity growth than we would if we had more competition. Okay. What's it doing to wages? Because if you work, for example, in the airline industry, um, and and the power is increasingly being consolidated, you may have fewer and fewer choices about where you work, and it means 
nobody has to pay you a particularly competitive wage because, like, you don't have a lot of choices. Well, one of the things when I looked across the economy that really leaps out at you is the growing body of research that suggests that something is going on in the labor market that is similar to what we're going on in the product and service markets. That is, increasingly in some industries and in some communities, there are fewer employers and the big employers dominate. And there is a growing body of evidence that this is reducing wages. That is, like there's uh, some economists uh, who recently did a paper, and they used uh, data from the website CareerBuilder. And they looked at over 8,000 local labor markets. And they basically said where there has been an increase in the fraction of people working for big employers in that community, wages are lower. Huh. When did things start to change? Like, how did we get to a place where we have the top companies in so many industries eating such a big piece of the pie uh, and leaving so little else for other companies? And that was not necessarily true. It was much less true a generation ago. How did this happen in the last generation? Well, you're right. And I think that it reflects two different things. One is this mindset on antitrust, which meant fewer mergers were opposed. That began really in the 80s. And then the second thing is the how much technology has evolved. And so, you know, think about how much bigger Facebook, Google, Amazon are today than they were in 2000. That's just an illustration of how technology has allowed some companies to get really big and claim a big part of the market. Do you feel like this trend is going to continue that, that we are now on this trajectory where it's hard to slow down the big companies from getting even bigger? I think it will continue until there's a political reaction that says enough is enough. Right. And so we see, for instance, the Trump administration is fighting a merger of AT&T and Time Warner. And that's not a merger of two companies that are in the same business trying to get a bigger market share. It's what they call a vertical merger. And the government is arguing, apparently in court from the press accounts without much success, that if you allow a content company and a pipeline company to merge, they'll have too much power. So they're testing the limits of that. I think whether the government decides to object to the T-Mobile and Sprint merger is a really significant thing. Okay. But I think over time, it'll. yes, I think it will change. But I don't think it's going to change anytime soon because it's so hard to stand up against the forces of technology, and it's so hard to change the case law on antitrust, and it's so hard to change the mindset. A different presidential administration might come in with kind of a coherent strategy. We want to promote competition. But in the current environment, it seems to be we want to get rid of regulation, Hmm. whether they're pro-competitive or not. David Wessel is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. He's also author of the recent Harvard Business Review article, Is Lack of Competition Strangling the U.S. Economy? We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. David, thank you so much. You're welcome. Also at our website, we'll link to an interview I did a couple years back about how mergers may have particularly hurt the Midwest. It's a conversation that has stuck in my head and that makes a compelling case about how consolidation has reshaped communities. 
In the early 1990s, a couple of writers put forward an idea that generational divides shape how we look at the world around us, and they shape America. That idea became known as generational theory. It was incredibly influential, and the authors kept updating it as time went on. They described millennials, for example, as quite different from their parents. Millennials, they said, were confident, optimistic about the future, and high-achieving. And we've seen a lot of media coverage recently about how millennials are optimistic about the future and driven to change politics, despite the fact that older generations are still in charge. That assessment, says economist John Quiggin, might be right on the money. But he says you could be forgiven if you felt like you'd heard it somewhere before. Uh, I'm a baby boomer myself. All the things that were being said about baby boomers and how they're in the way of the young and all those things were exactly the things that baby boomers had said about their parents. Quiggin is a senior research fellow in economics at the University of Queensland in Australia. And the more I looked at it, the more I saw that all of these statements, or the vast majority of them, are really cliches about age groups uh, that have been true for all eternity, uh, combined with some uh, very misleading discussion of, of particular events that are supposed to have shaped generations. Quiggin argues that generational distinctions are largely nonsense. The notion that millennials are fundamentally different from baby boomers or that Gen Xers are fundamentally different from the greatest generation. And he says, sure, 20-year-olds are different from 60-year-olds, but that's always been true. And there are other dividing lines that are a lot more important. Still, major historical events can have a real impact on people, like the 2008 financial crisis, which narrowed the job prospects and, to some degree, the earning potential of many millennials. And economist John Quiggin says economic crashes do matter, as do events like 9-11 in Vietnam. But saying they matter differently to people who were born in a specific age range doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're talking, of course, for these generations of people of you know, range of 15 years in age. So we're talking about yeah, experiences that some members of a generation experienced as young children and others as young adults. So, so that's very different. If you look at Vietnam, it, it truly was uh, a generation-shaping event for uh, the kind of people who write about this stuff, which is roughly um, uh, educated white men. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, of course, one of the crucial things was the draft uh, the experience of women, of course, was totally different, but educated white men typically could get deferments, uh, faced a much bigger range of choices than, uh, for example, working-class white men. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, of course, uh, race plays into this always. So, so those differences which are enduring and which really show up in all sorts of, uh, of uh, behaviour are far more important. Talking about generations obscures those continuities uh, which is particularly important because so many of those things are transmitted from generation to generation. But I, I do see, you know, my, my grandmother used to say that when she was growing up, she didn't know, for example, anybody who was gay. Now, she may well have known somebody, but she didn't know that she knew anybody. Mm. But you see in that statement a changing of sort of social mores over time and that, you know, somebody who is young today not only would likely know people around them who are gay, both like in physical proximity, mm. but also could easily point to celebrities. It's just they're growing up in such a different time. How could that not matter? Well, it matters, but of course, there's two things. One is that's a continuous process. I guess Stonewall was in 1969, which is nearly 50 years ago. So that process has been going on continuously over a very, very long period. It didn't take a sudden jump 
uh, when we switch from Generation X to Millennials or from Millennials to the next generation. So there's no sense in which falling on one side or another of a generational boundary affects the way in which, uh, in which those, um, uh, those big events uh, affect you. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, again, those things, uh, you know, those things you know, the experience of gay men and gay women is very different. So, so even there, there's a big, big gender factor. Do you know when we started labeling generations? Like when was was there a time when people started doing things like the silent generation, baby boomers, or has that always happened? No, the baby boomers really started this. And the baby boom actually was a demographic fact. There was a huge increase in the number of babies born immediately after World War II for obvious reasons. That continued until the early 1960s. So there was a there was a genuine demographic fact called the baby boom. But actually, if you look at it culturally, uh, the older baby boomers had much more in common with people uh, born during the war, you know, people like most of the members of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the younger generation, uh, those born after about uh, the mid-1950s, had radically different experiences. They weren't exposed to the draft. Uh, they came into the labour market in a time of, uh, of depression rather than boom. So the demographic factor of the baby boom started this stuff. And then um, that was carried on. There was a very influential book by Strauss and Howe that came out in 1991, which really put forward a systematic theory and put this whole thing on a sheer scientific basis. I think that's a really interesting point you make, that there's sort of nothing magical about a certain set of years and that life experience is really what matters. And I want to ask you about this um, related to politics. So we've heard quite a bit that millennials in general don't feel that great about the Republican Party. But if you go beyond that label of millennial and break it down, as you have written, you find that white millennials often are not all that different from their parents in supporting President Trump. And, of course, black millennials are 100 percent in line with their parents in Mm -hmm. opposing Trump. Right. Does that say to you then that race is more important because, I mean, race, just like age, is like a dividing group. But are you saying like race is a more important dividing group than dividing people by how old they are? Well, of course, age itself has a significant characteristic. But of course, everybody through their life goes through the um, goes through all the ages. Uh, so obviously, in some sense, uh, yeah, black toddlers and white toddlers have a lot in common. But but when you look at life experience, uh, uh, the year in which you were born, the generation in which you were born matters far less than whether you were born black or white, whether you were born into a poor family or a rich family. Uh, you know, the US, uh, all societies, but particularly the US, have very little social mobility. So if you were born into the top 20% of the income distribution, it doesn't really matter very much what generation you were born into. You, the odds are stacked in your favour compared to somebody born into the bottom 20%. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with John Quiggan, a senior research fellow in economics at the University of Queensland. We're talking about categorizing people along generational lines and why that might not make a whole lot of sense. Do you feel like it's mostly the media to blame for these incorrect characterizations? Is there a lot of this that goes on in academia where people are trying to say, well, this is true of people who are 60 and this is true of people who are 40 and 20 and so on? Uh, academics were onto this a long time ago. The, the great um, sociologist Karl Mannheim looked at our generational experiences, uh, but for very narrow subgroups of of the population, and and he looked at uh, whether, for example, the experiences of of uh, World War One or or um, uh, the nationalist movements of the nineteenth century had a particular experience on a generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
really it's turned out to be very difficult to get very much out of that. And so on a routine basis, uh, most economics and social sciences makes no use of these categories. We make a lot of use of age and experience, so, so we take account of of where somebody is in the mix at any given time. Uh, but there's very little that takes membership of a, of a cohort, especially one that matches the um, pop culture generations of baby boomers, nexus and so forth. I want to talk about one more uh, defining moment, at least, as a lot of people saw it. Um, a, a few months ago in February, uh, after the Parkland, Florida uh, high school shooting, you saw student activists all of a sudden really pushing for tighter gun reform in a very, very visible way. Um, these were teenagers, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, people um, who are younger than millennials, actually. Um, and people were very quick to like make characterizations about that generation. What did you think when you, when you saw that? Well, of course, um, teenagers are... Uh, Ever since the invention of the teenagers, which actually <laughs> dates back to about the 1950s, before that there weren't any teenagers, um, people left school at 15 or 16 and became adults. But right. teenagers have always been uh, yeah, enthusiastic about things, uh, including periodically political causes. I think if you uh, if you go back, you can see comedies. So there's one Michael Fox was in it uh, with the parents, of course, older activists lamenting the fact that their son was a right wing. Person, oh, yeah, family ties. Family I, I, ties. Know, I remember it well. Uh, so what we've seen is something, a very familiar pattern, which is we've had this horrible event. Uh, people of all ages, um, the majority of people, have, have recorded against it and have, have shifted in favour of more gun control. And the young people directly affected uh, have become active. It's, it's very similar, of course, to what you saw with the activism that came out of the Vietnam War, where young men were being drafted to fight in a war that had been uh, had been chosen by older people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so obviously, it's a very characteristic event in this process, uh, but uh, but something that doesn't require anything about explaining a particular generation. If somebody thinks, you know, dividing uh, groups by age and talking about them that way, like talking about baby boomers and millennials, is just totally innocuous, um, what would you say are there downsides of slicing and dicing the country by age? Yes, there's a very ugly part of this, which is attempts to divide the population on age group lines or generational lines that says... There's a book saying how the baby boomers ruined America, for example, or and you can see see similar stuff uh, against against the young. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, yeah, if you look at um, look at baby boomers, uh, that class includes Donald Trump. It includes a six year old black woman who cleans one of his hotels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that those people are in some sense on the same side is totally misleading. Uh, really, most of the divisions in society. Uh, uh, with the exception of gender, are very much inherited from one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, yeah, if you are the child of wealthy white Republican parents, you're likely to be wealthy and certainly white and probably a Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, trying to line up the generations obscures the uh, processes that have led to those class divisions, in particular, becoming so much sharper with the uh, concentration of wealth in the hands of the one percent. Do you think? People 
in society are starting to think differently about uh, dividing dividing people by age into these generational cohorts? Like, do you think people are starting to think more like you are thinking about it? I'm afraid not. I, I, one of my books is called Zombie Economics, about ideas and economics that can't be killed. And I think uh, uh, generational thinking is a zombie idea. You can refute it as many times as you like, but uh, the appeal is just just there. It's a very easy easy device to slice and dice people. doesn't require a lot of thinking. I, I don't see any evidence, unfortunately, that's going away. John Quagan is a senior research fellow in economics at the University of Queensland. He recently wrote about demographics and generational distinctions in the New York Times. We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. John, thank you so much. Thank you. Come gather our people wherever you roam. Admit that the waters around you have grown. Accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving. And you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a change I talked earlier about generational theory, which arose in the 1990s as one of the main influences on how we view age groups. We've got more from Neil Howe and William Strauss, who Quiggin mentioned, the two historians who developed generational theory and coined the term millennial. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Chloe Lemelhay and Simone Migliori. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.